0: Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct.
1: Before our boys have learned to read, they have already read the Stoic Code of Masculinity and are conforming to it.
0: So says Terry Reel, world-renowned family therapist, speaker, best-selling author, and founder of the Relational Life Institute, where he offers workshops for couples, individuals, parents, and therapists. He is also a dear friend. While he's best known these days for his couple's work, Decades ago, he wrote the landmark book on male depression, which I cannot recommend enough. It's called, I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression. And with it, Reel established himself as one of the most respected voices in the treatment of men and the healing of their relationships with the world. In this episode, we talk about why depression is quote-unquote illegal for men the cultural programming of boys, and forced attachment in the name of autonomy. Our culture of individualism, Real says, has done as much damage as our culture of patriarchy, leaving men little room for the type of connection and relationality that we humans live for. He leaves us with the steps for deprogramming ourselves from patriarchal thinking and parenting, as well as the ways in which we can support the men in our lives in service of deeper connection and the pursuit of greater Relational Joy. Let's get to our conversation. So funny because I actually, I feel like obviously we've had many conversations and I've had the privilege of interviewing you many times and I cannot wait to interview you again for your book because you are so prescient and ahead of the time. And And I actually, today I want to talk to you about I Don't Want to Talk About It, which is, was that the first book you ever wrote? Yeah,
1: 1997.
0: I mean, it is so.
1: It was bad. pretty prescient, wasn't it? It was
0: so prescient. And it's such a powerful and beautiful book that I cannot recommend to enough people. And it's so funny that you're saying that your next book is about, I guess, interdependence, because the thing that I, I'm like, I really want to write a book about codependence, interdependence, and independence at some point in the next decade. But yours will be another another Hallmark book because I write about I don't want to talk about it in your theory of male depression in the book that I'm about to turn in. Um, uh, whoa. I know, in the patriarchy. and. But I, in reading it, I can't believe I never read it because I've focused so much of my attention on your later work around couples and because I think this book is from an individual to a – is from the micro to the macro. I don't want to talk about it. And your model of male depression is such a perfect – expression of not all of our social ills but so many it's such a like slice of how this dysfunction has shown up in our patriarchal society and in our relationships and how we parent boys
1: all of the above uh, thank you I feel quite appreciated hearing that
0: so let's start let's start let's start when I when I read your theory of male depression which is, let me see if I can get it right. But essentially it's trauma. And I want to talk about trauma and the way that you define it as passive or active, because I think that's very critical. Typically wrapped in some sort of addictive defense.
1: Grandiose defense. defense. from, From one down to one up. It could be addiction, substance abuse. It could be action like gambling or sex. And unfortunately, for no small portion of men, it could be violence.
0: Right. And it's covert. The impression is covert. And so that's why it's been, for the most part, I don't know, I'm curious to know if this is still the case, but I thought it was wild when you added up, you know, women are more diagnosed with overt depression because we are more expressive and we're trained to talk about our feelings. We might not be able to identify our feelings very well, but- we talk about it. And so we're more likely to be diagnosed as overt. There's not as much stigma for women. But men are not very likely to be diagnosed with overt depression. But then when you tallied addiction, personality disorders, domestic violence, the two equal out.
1: If you look at depressed men, depressed women, it looks like women are two to four times more depressed than men. What I say about covert depression in a nutshell is you don't see the depression. You see the maneuvers that the man is making to escape the depression. You see the footprints of the depression. So addiction, acting out, isolation and withdrawal, and an attack. These are the things that you that you look for in this. You see, depression is illegal for men. it's not unwomanly to be depressed. Both men and women have the stigma of depression, but men have a compound stigma because it's unmanly. Look, feelings themselves are unmanly. Having them is unmanly and uh, being brought down by them because you're too weak to handle them is ridiculously unmanly. So one of the things I say, of course, you know, Elise, is that the essence of traditional masculinity is invulnerability. Mm -hmm. The more invulnerable you are, the more manly you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more girly you are. And of course, that's just a bold-faced lie. Men are just as vulnerable as women are. Humans are vulnerable creatures. I, I say to the guys I work with, Uh, Trying to escape your vulnerability is like running from your own anus. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It has a way of following you around, but we do. (laughs) And men men deny vulnerability and then they deny the depression. They certainly don't get help for it. I, 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 I wrote in the book, a man is as likely to ask for help for depression as he is to ask for directions. And so we have to figure out what to do about that because these men need help.
0: And so typically, I'm assuming in your practice, which I know is, is it fully couples or do you still do individual work? You do individual work and group work. But I think probably for most men, they're really only ever called to the mat to address it when they're in relationship. Either they're hitting rock bottom in in some way in their life or they're in relationship and and it does show up in ways that are completely unacceptable. Threatening or shut down, yeah. Where then they're and then is that at some in some ways an intervention on we can work on this relationship, and but you need to go and work on yourself.
1: Yeah, it's both. But you know, a lot of men will let me coach the women who are listening. If you're with a depressed man who is refusing to get help, don't fight him about getting him into individual therapy. Get him into couples therapy. Tell him he may not have an issue, but the two of you have an issue. And you've made an appointment with such and such, and you expect him to get his butt in there. And then once you're in front of a mental health professional, then you say, I think my partner is, has a clinical depression. Let me tell you why. And let's talk about what we're going to do about it. But uh, don't fight him. Get his own therapist. Bring him along.
0: Visit roberthalf.com today. So interesting, though, just in the context of my own relationship, not to overshare, but I have in the past. But when we went to couples therapy, it was the first time that that Rob had heard that he was depressed. It was so interesting. And it was an immediate reaction from, it was Stan Tatkin. And he was like, Rob, you're depressed. I think you've been depressed for your entire life. And it was a revelation I think for both of us because in part because this script for men is missing and no one had stopped to look at his sort of the manifestation of it to be like this isn't normal like this is this is and I use normal not in a a denigrating way but in a way yeah like yeah exactly no it's just I think that I think that we can diagnose our partners, though I know we're told not to. But also sometimes you just need an objective person in the room who can sort of look at the dynamics and understand. But do you feel like most therapists are aware of male depression and the way that you've modeled it
1: more than when i wrote the book for sure there's a movement of foot in the apa to distinguish male depression from female depression because it it shows up differently in men than women and that's starting to be more generally recognized the particulars you know i i have my version and and some other people have slight differences but they're pretty slight It, it is generally recognized in psychology that men and women express depression differently. That's becoming more recognized now, but not by your general therapist on the street. This is, you know, in academia. Um, right. No, most people will miss it, yeah. uh, including therapists. And here's why, because it's shameful. And so look, you're the partner of a depressed man. I'll bet you can relate to this. You feel like if you confront them too directly or too hard on their depression, it's like you're unmasking them, you're humiliating them. And they're going to like either blow up or leave or fall apart if you do that. Women are just as shy about confronting the man's depression as the man is, but it's different. The man doesn't want to, the woman's afraid of hurting her, right. her partner or causing a blow up.
0: Well, and, and I think, and you write about this so beautifully in the context of your own life, That once you sort of pull that defense and then the covert depression, which is sort of holding that nut of trauma in the center of the the body, whether they can address it or are ready to...
1: Because like this, there's trauma, there's depression, which is a response to the trauma. And then there's adaptation to the depression in drinking or womanizing or acting out or whatever, which then fuels relational difficulties. And for many men, it's the relational difficulties that then trigger them getting into therapy. And then you have to wind the whole thing down.
0: Right. And so when you pin out, sorry, when you pull out the pin of those adaptive mechanisms, which you write about sort of in the context of your own life and in the case studies in the book. So when you address the addiction, you address the affairs, whatever it may be, and there's no longer that security blanket or crutch, that allows the covert depression to become overt which is the wasteland i think you describe it as like you have to get through this and you you have a beautiful line like the cure for sadness is grief but that these men have to let it come up
1: the cure for a covert depression is an overt depression And then we have to cure the overt depression, but it's a two-step process. First, this sort of acting out or addictive or dysfunctional behaviors have to settle down, the defenses against the depression. Then the man feels the depression, and that's often a pretty hairy time for everybody. needs a lot of support, maybe medication. I'm a big fan of medication generally for depression. And then you wind it down. The, the thing is that we haven't talked about yet is the core yeah, beneath the relational difficulties, beneath the problematic adaptations like drinking or womanizing or whatever. And then beneath the depression is trauma. Yes. And in the, just as I maintain that the depression is different for men and women, trauma is often different for men and women the way that boys get hurt in this culture is ubiquitous and predictable and patterned. It's called patriarchy.
0: Yes. Preach. Yes. So I want to talk about that sort of the cultural programming of boys. You talk about it as this need to turn boys into men. Have you ever heard
1: that phrase?
0: Yeah. From you. (laughs) No, but I've heard it in the culture, of course. Yeah, but how um, much,
1: how much uh, have you heard in the culture we need to turn girls into women? Never. Right, because girls naturally turn into women. But don't boys naturally turn into men? I guess not. I guess you have to do this surgery on them to get them to let go of their dependencies and feelings and mothers and boyish ways and be initiated into the stoicism of manhood. It's all... Bullshit. Boys left alone will become men, (laughs) just like girls left alone will become women. The question is, what kind of man is this boy going to become? And that's where we all come in.
0: Right. And this forced detachment from mothers, this idea that love in some ways needs to be not eradicated, but heavily boundaried, that you need to Untie those apron strings and let your boys go. I mean, I've heard you say many times, like, we have to dramatically counteract that narrative and keep our boys close.
1: Keep our boys close. I'll tell you a story from my own life. I have two sons, uh, 34 and 31. 31's uh, about to be a doctor and and also a, a researcher, PhD MD. Anyway, he was having some sexual insecurities, whatever, and he talked to his mom about it. And he tells his therapist that he talked to his mom about his sexual insecurity. This therapist, a classic individualist, says to him, Alexander, boundaries, boundaries. Why are you talking to your mother about your sex life? And God, you don't mess with Alexander. Alexander said, well, she's a certified sex therapist. She's a certified sex addiction therapist. She's one of the most famous therapists in the country. And she's just about one of my best friends. Why wouldn't I tell her??
0: <laughs> it is true. I mean, I don't want to talk to my parents about sex either, but that you have to wonder how much of that is a is a cultural construct. Like we're, we also are missing and, and this is a tangent. but we have no culture of initiation. We have no sort of collective parenting anymore. We have no sort of like aunties and uncles who also initiate and teach children about these things in a way that's protective and parental. So hey, I applaud him.
1: And you know not I'm not advocating that boys talk to their mothers about uh, sex particularly, but I use it as an example of our we look, the whole patriarchal culture, which in, very much includes the field of psychology, has this myth about individuation separation and autonomy. And if you really look at it, the idea here in the traditional literature, including psychological and literature, if you leave a boy and a mother to their own resources, it, it will be at least emotionally, if not physically incestuous forever. The boy will never pull away from the regressive suck of that enmeshing mother. What an insulting image of motherhood that is. And it takes the father to step between the boy and the mother and pull him out of her grasp and teach him how to be a man gay uh, gay and uh, lesbian uh, kid, kids from gay and lesbian families well forget them they're lost single parent uh, families boys raised by mothers well forget them they're in, they're disempowered it's all disempowering toxic bullshit. yeah boys don't no. need a man to learn how to be a boy Boys need adults to teach them how to be an adult. Period. End of story.
0: Terry, I love you, but it's true. It's like, and then these things become almost. Speaking of enmeshment, the cultural differences are then equated as uh, equated as na- as natural, right? That women are relational and men are not. That and and as you point out in the book, you know, there's spades of research to suggest that boys are sometimes needier, more attached than, than little girls. Yeah,
1: if you look um, at Judy choose research, little boys are more emotional and more sensitive than little girls of the same age. Their hearts are more on their sleeves until four or five. And by three, four, and five, according to this research and others, they don't feel any less. They will over time, but they know better than to express it. Mm-hmm. They know the rules of the game, they know how to navigate the playground. And one of the things I say, Elise, is before our boys have learned to read, they have already read the stoic code of masculinity and are conforming to it. Three, four, mm-hmm. five. The wound of girls is at the edge of adolescence. If you read Carol Gilligan, it's 12, 11, 13. But think about. Think about a wound at 12, 11, 13 versus one at 3, 4, 5. It's almost preverbal. It is so deep and so in the cells of our men. This wound of essentially abandonment. I had a guy, Alex, talk in a minute. I had a guy who, I mean, this isn't funny. I had a guy who was crying like a baby. He was an offender, he used to masturbate in public and I'm winding down his story. And he uh, remembered being four years old and having his father line up the whole family in this ritual and take the blanket that he had from babyhood and burn it at four.
0: Oh, God. You know, I know at the end, I'll give information for the I know you're doing a sort of webinar with Carol Gilligan, who wrote In a Different Voice and sort of an incredible, I guess, researcher, feminist about girls losing their voice effectively in the studies, where they look at how women start to fear disconnection and they don't want to stand out because they think that they'll lose their relationships. And as you mentioned, it happens a little bit. Later, this desire to conform and belong and not be the tall poppy. But let's talk a little bit more about that trauma, because you talked about it as being distinct from the trauma that girls experience. And you also talk about the difference between passive and active trauma, which I think is so incredibly well put, because we think of trauma as, you know, did your father beat you? If not, does it count?
1: Right. How about mommy, mommy, I just fell off my bike and hurt my knee. It's bleeding. Okay, let me just finish this martini, honey. I'll be right over. Right. That doesn't count as trauma. does to me. Active trauma, which is the one we always think about, is about something that was there that shouldn't have been there. Somebody's rage or sexuality or overconfidence or whatever. Passive trauma or neglect is about what should have been there that wasn't there. And when I get guys who walk in, and, oh, I, I grew up in the perfect family, you know, oh, okay, tell me about this. Look, good parenting consists of three things. I got this and the idea of passive trauma, by the way, from one of my great mentors, a woman named Pia Melody, P I A M E L L O D Y. Anyway, I would say but good parenting consists of nurture, guidance, and limits. Okay, good. Then we go through the five domains of human experience. So Joe, let's talk about physical Were you cuddled? Were you hugged? Were you kissed? Were you taught to take care of your body, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh yeah. That's usually an easy one. Let's do intellectual. Did they homework with you? Did they care about your mind? Okay. Now let's do the emotional. There were a lot of feelings in your family. No. Who did you turn to, Joe, when you were hurt or frightened or upset? I turned to me. Right. At about how old? Far back as I can remember. Right. I'll tell you why Joe turned to him, because at at a time when he was so young, he can't even remember it. He tried a couple, three times to turn to his parents and he saw what they got. Mm. And then he determined there was no water in that stone and started taking care of himself. This is ubiquitous, Elise. This is part of what it means. This is the burning of the blanket. It's the severing of connection in the name of blessed autonomy. It's insane.
0: It is insane. And you write something to the extent of like, there's violence and not telling your child that you love them. Yes which I know maybe has changed, but was, as you say, quite ubiquitous, you know, you ask a lot of men, like, did your father tell you that he loved you? And the answer is never, (laughs) or on his deathbed, you know, or at my wedding.
1: Yeah. He didn't have to tell me. I just knew it. Yeah. Right. Right. So all of this is abuse. All of this is neglect. All of this is injury, but along with all this is the look When a father says to a son, stop crying, as far as I'm concerned, in that moment, that father is an instrument of the culture. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You see, culture doesn't get, how does culture get transmitted? It's not some abstract thing. You don't get an online course on patriarchy. Culture is transmitted through people. It's transmitted in families. And when that man was burning his son's blanket, that was patriarchy burning that blanket. When that father says to his son, you're too old to cry, you need to calm down. That's patriarchy talking to that boy. The the way these things get transmitted is through particular interactions with actual people, parents and vulnerable boys. And not just Mm. that. Let's talk about the kids in the playground let's talk about school and teachers and coaches it's everywhere
0: as a protection against that is it enough you know as a parent of two little boys is it enough to be sort of anti-patriarchal in your parenting to stave that off or i mean obviously it's it's any sort of weaponized masculinity is dangerous, particularly if you have a really tender, open boy. But is it, I guess it helps, right?
1: I I bet Um, you do. How old are your kids?
0: Five and eight. They're so adorable and so tender. And it's really interesting. Max, my oldest, is a walking feeling. He is just an emotive, like so easy to set off. And it's really triggering for my husband at times, you know, like he really struggles. He, he will remove himself rather than sort of tell him not to cry. Whereas I'm like, just, you know, let it out, <laughs> let it out. But it is interesting to watch him fight that instinct, because I think that's probably what came at him was a shutdown.
1: Yes, it's not an instinct. It's a replay of what happened to him as a child. Yeah. I guarantee it. There's nothing so, instinctive about it. This isn't nature. This is mankind's imposition of rules and narratives on little tender people.
0: I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy. Not only because I live in a 1,500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, sure, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients, in two capsules per day. Their unique and Oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP-verified meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust get 25% off your first month at ritual.com/thread start ritual or add essential for women 18 plus to your subscription today that's ritual.com/thread for 25% off so how do we de- how does that deprogramming happen and then when you're looking when you're working on trauma particularly in men who wouldn't even know how to identify it as such Is the awareness of it enough, or do you find that the men you work with who are sort of in this layered covert, overt depression have somewhat of a black box of understanding of what's actually there?
1: Well, we open up the box. That's my job. That's what I do for a living. I'm a box opener.
0: Get out that box cutter. The the
1: best thing I've ever been... Someone once called me the husband whisperer. I thought that was the best (laughs)
0: And it exists in everyone?
1: Listen, uh, I'll tell you how it goes. I'll be sitting with the world's most shut down guy. Head, 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 head. No feelings, no heart, nothing. And I'll say, okay, listen, we got to get you into your feelings. Here's a piece of paper. On the piece of paper are seven primary emotions. Name them. Joy, pain, anger, fear, shame, guilt, love. Joy, pain, anger, fear, shame, guilt, love. Those are primary emotions, like primary colors, I say. There are millions of views of feelings, just like colors, but these are the essentials. Look at that list, Joe. Take a breath. What are you feeling right now as you're sitting in that chair? I I guess I'm a little nervous. I'm going to fuck this up. Right. That's fear, Joe. Where's that in your body? Kind of in my chest. Okay, what's the sensation? Yeah, a butterfly kind of thing. Yeah, if those butterflies could speak, what would they say right now? Uh, I guess I don't wanna be judged by you. Now, what are you feeling as you say that, Joe? I don't know why, but I, I feel a little sad. Hey, Joe, congratulations, you have feelings. Now look at the list. What else are you feeling and what else? and what else and by the time the guy has got through five feelings i get to the punchline: joe you're not shut down you're a passionate man this is my favorite line your feelings never left you you left them they've been percolating this whole time all you have to do is turn the satellite dish in and listen to them you're a highly feelingful passionate man and at that point if joe isn't in tears his wife is
0: I'm in tears. <laughs> no, it's so but that somatic expression, which I feel like is missing from so much therapy, which is sort of like, tell me about your childhood. Tell me, you know, but that that moment, I mean, this it it works on me. I think so many of us, you know, men or two are too, or when I actually feel into my body and talk to it, it's wild what I am keeping at bay. And but i can only imagine how revelatory that would be for a man because as you know to quote harriet lerner it's like the women are the overfunctioners emotionally right like we do all the house the emotional housekeeping typically for our partners where they don't know how to process their feelings. So we tell them how to process their feelings. Is that accurate?
1: <laughs> How's that work for everybody? You know, Really I, great. Yeah, really great. <laughs> Let me tell you what you're feeling, pal. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. Listen.
0: <laughs> I, Rob loves it when I do that.
1: You know, it's funny because I talk about in our culture, broad generalization lots of variations okay understood but in our culture uh men tend to lead from the one up superior position and have covert hidden shame and insecurity women tend to lead with the insecure shame position and have covert grandiosity and superiority and you know what it is what We know more than you do about how to love and have relationships. So honey, why don't you just sit back and let me tell you what to do? Yes. Good luck.
0: No, totally. But don't you think I had lunch with a friend, sort of a child who works with children yesterday, I don't know if you've ever met Joe Newman, but he was saying, you know, he talks a lot about the model of power and approval with children. They're either approving, they're seeking approval or they're seeking power. And it's, again, it's also very patriarchal in the way that people were raised. But he just made sort of an aside where he was like, men have had 2,000, 3,000 years of mentorship and training and how to wield and hoard and hold power and meanwhile, you have women, right, who have t- have had 3,000 years of mentorship in how to be relational, and it's, it is, in some ways, has been our only form of power.
1: Elise, I got to push yeah. back. Do it. Okay. Are women more relational than men? Yes and no. Are women more relational than men? Yes. Have they been raised... To think about relationships, learn the skills uh, of relationships and so forth. Yes. But if if, I think Carol and I talk about this in the interview, Carol has a wonderful, uh, Carol Gilligan has a wonderful phrase there is no relationship without voice, and there is no voice without relationship. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to tell you, if I think of relationships as forthright, straightforward, sharing and negotiation No, women don't make it you, you ever see my great great fat greek wedding remember that movie yeah i don't know if you saw it or not but there's this one scene that everybody thought was so cute where the mother in the family says man is the head of the household woman is the neck where the neck moves the head moves and everybody thinks that's really adorable and i was ready to throw up it's yeah. a celebration of manipulation And if men wield direct power in the traditional setup, women wield indirect power. I don't blame women for that. It's the only power they could wield. But let's be clear women have not just been shrinking angels in all of this. And also, I got to tell you, Elise, there's no shortage of superior, abusive, attacking women. The difference is that when women attack, Almost always they attack from the victim position. You hurt me, so I get to hurt you back, which is crazy thinking, but very common. It's what Pia calls offending from the victim position. I have no shame about hurting you because you hurt me first. Right. And when women attack, they attack as self-righteous, indignant victims.
0: That's That feels very Resonant and true. And as does the manipulative part, I feel like as a child, I very, very, very quickly learned. I would probably have called it being persuasive, but I certainly learned how to maneuver in a very covert way to get my needs met.
1: I had to, I would say, because of being forthright as a woman wasn't going to get you anywhere. But hey, I got great news. We're in the 21st century. And, um, The trick is to empower women to have full voice in their relationships and empower men to sit still, open up their ears, open up their hearts and listen and respond. And understand, this is what my new book is about, understand that it's in your interest to listen and respond to your partner. It's good for you, not just them.
0: When people come to you, And I think, you know, you talked about the offender, sort of the masturbator on the bench and his burnt blanket, and you look at at society, right? And you look at all of these boys who are mowing down children with machine guns, and you look at the extreme, you know, the domestic abuse, which is almost, I mean, let's say it's epidemic and weighted very heavily towards men, And then, you know, you talk too, which is like how men, when you think about turning men into – or boys into men, we also turn them into soldiers, right? Like we also create this culture that's like, oh, violence is your destiny and we're going to glorify it in the process through G.I. Joe and war stories. And I mean, it's great. I I am – I'll just say I'm a very imperfect parent and the stuff sometimes that I'm like, what game are you playing? Like, what is that? Like where did that come from? It's everywhere.
1: First of all, there are a couple of things that you'll see everywhere. One is boys adventure stories almost always tend to start with the death of their mother. I don't know if you noticed that, but think about it. Parts of all, even Bambi, for crying out loud, starts with the death of his mother. The, the boy adventure is leave mom, enter into the world and prove your worth, prove your mettle. You know, I deal with very high powered guys. There, there might be very, very successful driven men. And they're all subject to what I call the Icarus syndrome, which is this. They leave hearth and home to work 80, 90 hours at their corporate job to prove themselves worthy of belonging in their hearth and home. Mm. They're the ones who left to begin with. It's such a scam. It's such a bitter pill for everybody. This man is off in the world, working like a slave, trying to prove his worthiness of love while his wife and kids or husband and kids or non-binary person and kids, whatever, is sitting at home going, where the hell are you? There are so many anti-relational structures that is part of masculine culture. Intimacy is not a part of traditional masculinity, which is why so many heterosexual couples are having so much difficulty. Women want men to be more emotionally connected and open and expressive and compassionate to them uh, than we raise boys to be able to be. There's a disjuncture between the socialization into masculinity and what women are wanting from men in marriage these days.
0: Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash P-T-T. So these men, these Icaruses, is then their defensive, their adaptation workaholism? Do they even know really how to be at home and be at risk? Or is that inherently incredibly uncomfortable for them. Like they don't really know how to be in relations, so they flee to the office. How much of it is driven out of their own discomfort versus the requirements of their corporate law firm?
1: Oh, it's, it's all their own discomfort. Well, that's not true. I mean, I say to guys all the time, if you give it to your career, absolutely everything you could give to your career, you'll be divorced right you'll be successful but you'll be divorced so every man has to and women now have to you know kind of chip it to pay pete rob peter to pay paul and when you're at work you wish you were with kids when you're with kids you think you should be at work people are suffering through this but but here's the thing can i tell you a story please i'm dealing with a guy he's worth millions and millions and millions he's only in his 40s he's he's a classic masculine story he's german he's macho he's tough he's built he's got a gorgeous wife you know and uh he only has one problem he's never felt joy in his life and i tell him i tell him a story about a guy just like him who i met who told me in his fifties that he had finally gotten his family to the point where he could commit suicide and leave them in good conscience. So I say to this guy, what comes closest to joy, even if it's just for a minute and God bless me says, well, I don't do well with my wife and I don't do well with, friends but i do like playing with my kids and that was the opening tell me what it feels like to be on your hands and knees playing horsey with your kids feels like a million bucks can i tell you why that is because you're connected because it's Mm -hmm. relational And a a, a distinction that I make with a lot of men, I I, I really want to get this in this talk today, is a distinction between gratification and relational joy. Gratification, which is what many men live their lives for, is pleasure. You know, you you get the big hit, you make a ton in the stock market, some pretty girl is smiling at you, it's great. And pleasure is fine in its place underneath that there's a deeper pleasure and it's not about gratification sometimes the 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 person you're with is gratifying sometimes they're a pain in the ass but if somebody said to you would you like to get out of this you'd shoot them because the joy is just in being there Mm -hmm. it's a joy in being and being connected i tell Mm -hmm. the story of my little one out same alexander when he was little he was a pistol And I was giving him a timeout and I was holding the door shut. We don't have, we didn't have locks and he was trying to get it open on the other side. I mean, the guy was like three foot and I'm telling you, man, the house was shaking. I mean, clouds were forming, lightning was coming out of it and I hated him. I wanted to throw him right through the window and another part of me was feeling, Oh, you mighty little spirit, you, you're going to do just fine. So Most many, many of the men that I work with have little to no parking space for relational joy. They don't even know what it is. And I have to teach it to them. But here's the beauty. Relationship is what we're born for. Connection is what the human being is designed for. And once I can get these men into the jet stream of connection and relationality, they take off. Mm.
0: And it's that simple.
1: Well, the art is getting them into that jet stream. (laughs) Yes, it is that simple because connection and relationality satisfies. Love is what we're here for. Everything else is everything else.
0: Yeah. So interesting. Like I think when I hear you, because I have my own armor is probably workaholism and busyness and which I use as a shield. And then I, when I think about my kids, because I don't really enjoy playing with my kids in that way, but I love being with my kids, right? Like when they're on my lap, when they're cuddling, when they're wanting to show me a video or reading a book. I just like that heart. The thing that you describe is that I think that relational joy, like I feel it in my heart, which sounds so cheesy, but. but No, no, no. You know what I would say?
1: (laughs) You're feeling it right now, aren't you?
0: Yes. Well, take
1: a minute. I'm going to be a therapist. Take a minute and let yourself feel what you feel.
0: Yeah. It is sustaining. Like that's all I want are those like putting them to bed.
1: It's what we live for. Yeah. Whether it's that or walking with your lover, holding hands or having a heart to heart with a friend, human connection is what we live for.
0: And when we trace that back, I mean, that's pre pre pre-culture, right? Like that is what do you think that that is? What is that?
1: That's in the species. That's evolution.
0: It's evolution. It's it's how we survive. It's our interdependence and collective need to help each other.
1: We're not, I mean, this is my new book. We're, we're not individuals. The, the culture of individualism has done as much damage as the culture of patriarchy. We don't self-regulate, that's a myth. We use other people to regulate and they use us to regulate. If you want to look at a completely freestanding individual, look at someone who's been in solitary confinement. That's yeah. a freestanding individual and they're crazy. You've been mad anyway.
0: Yeah. We'll save that conversation for March when your next book comes out. I can't wait, but it's, can we even address how do we solve? And maybe all of these things happen concurrently, but how are we, and do you feel hopeful that we're deprogramming ourselves from this patriarchal thinking sort of one man, one boy at a time?
1: Yes, that's right. One family at a time. Look, what I want you to do, what you can do as a mom or a dad is you can teach your kids to be what I call gender literate, which means if you express yourself as a boy fully, depending on how it is, you might get grief for it. And let me help you deal with that. If you choose to not express yourself and conform, you'll conform and you won't get grief, but you won't have expressed yourself. Yeah. And at any given moment, where are you on the spectrum? And what do you want to choose? My kids came home from Santa Domingo with cornrows in their hair and they were going to school and my older one couldn't handle it. And we we took them out. And the younger one went with a whole head in cornrows. Uh, But we said to them, if you go with that in your hair, you may be the toast of the town or you may be the butt of ridicule. Are you prepared for that? And one said no. And one said yes. And they were both fine. That's what I mean by teaching our boys to be gender literate.
0: So much of it, but requires like a certain faith, right? Like this ability, which I think we lack sometimes in ourselves of Like, I am just going to hold the space. It's that moment that you described with Alexander on the other side of the door when you were like, he's going to be fine. How do we parent from that place of knowing, not knowing maybe, but like, and not believing, believing.
1: Listen, one of the main things I want to tell you is uh, if you've been listening to this talk for the last hour, Uh, don't try and do it alone don't do it as an individual have your allies have your troops have your girlfriends have playdates try and find other progressive families to hang out with I, i like to ask people to create a gender progressive relationship loving subculture around their family friends and you can train your friends and other family members, w- w- how to interact with your with your boy, so that will go a long way. And also, hey, you know what? Uh, how about changing the culture? How, how about uh, going into school and starting a committee on uh, bullying, which is almost all male, and or on boys and how to help them? How about paying some attention to these underserved. This underserved population called boys and men.
0: Yeah, I know. It's for our own self-preservation too, really, socially, you know, because this is, it's not trending in the right direction in terms of who's wreaking harm on society.
1: I think that it's, um, I think it's mixed. I think that we're at war right now. I think masculinity is at war with itself. And on the one hand, you have a lot of push for progressive changes in men. The younger the man, the more progressive he will tend to be in terms of gender. On the other hand, you have people like Trump and you know uber conservative right, and they're at war right now. And uh, the stakes are very high on which side wins, I gotta tell you that. So don't just sit there and be a good mom. Think about how you might impact the culture. In your Working community, on it. in your neighborhood, <laughs> in your school.
0: I guess that was a more general call. But yes, I agree. It is really on all of us. Okay. So, Terry, obviously, it's really hard to see you. I know you train therapists and you have resources. So, where should people start?
1: Come to my website. It's just my name, terryreal.com, T E R R Y R E A L. I've got a great course. If I say so myself, it's the first online course for the general public I've ever done on basic essential relationship skills, how to stand up for yourself with love, how to listen and get yourself out of the way and really be compassionate to your partner, how to respond with generosity, how to make peace, how to cherish your partner, what to do when your partner's being a jerk and you're not and how to sustain A connection through radical honesty with each other but skilled radical honesty those are the basic skills i cover
0: do you have to do it with your partner can you do it alone
1: do it alone singles do this relationships are relationships whether it's your partner your boss your dog your kid your girlfriend same (laughs) skills
0: cats are easy all right i'm gonna go take it so thank you for that
1: Thank you. It's called Staying in Love, and you can get it on my website, terryreal.com.
0: Well, if you guys can't tell, I'm a Terry Real mega fan. I think he is so brilliant, and I cannot—he's written many great books. The later books that he's written have been primarily about relationships, and obviously these themes hold, but— I just want to put in another plug. It's, an, it's a book from the 90s, but I don't want to talk about it, which is his first book. And, it, and in it, he also talks about his own experience in life, his struggles with addiction, anger, his very hard childhood with an abusive father, and then his process of healing and the ways in which he had to walk that wasteland and let that covert depression become overt. And as he writes, he got through it, but it's hard. And I think that that's really what we're asking so many men to do is to let go, let go of this idea of what it is to be a man, let go of the incredible amount of sadness and despair that's lodged in people's bodies from a lifetime of repression and to just let it happen. And it, it requires, I think, you know, he's friends with bell hooks. I'm sure many of you have read bell hooks, but it requires an acknowledgement of the way that the patriarchy damages men. And not to slip into sympathy. to quote Kate Mann, which is when we grant more sympathy to men who hurt people than we do to the women who are often their victims. But it's incumbent on us, I think, to allow that boys and men are hurting. And that is why they in turn hurt. So I really, and as you can tell from Terry, it's such an engaging read full of really, really interesting and beautiful moving stories. I also want to give a plug, as he mentioned, he's doing this webinar with Carol Gilligan. He's sort of one of the names that comes up From almost any therapist or any feminist, she wrote this book called In a Different Voice, which is oft quoted. And so they're doing a seminar, and this is the information for how to get it. You can opt in. You can text your email address to 415-813-1025. That's for the Carol Gilligan seminar that she's doing with she's doing with Terry, 415-813-1025, and then his website, terryreal.com, to take this course on how to be in relationship. Most of the stuff that he does is for other therapists besides his books, and he has many books, and he has a new one coming out in March, so he'll be back to talk about that. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS.com dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.